Good morning, church. It is good to worship with you this morning. It is a beautiful Sunday morning, and it is a beautiful day to, like every day is, to remember that it is finished. No more debt I owe. We should, we should leave every Sunday just praising God for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross where all my debt is paid. That should be the heart of everybody leaving here today. And I'm just thankful for that song because that just reminds me that that is, that is the case. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the uh, book of 2 Corinthians. We are in, well, creeping into the third chapter creeping into the third chapter this morning. And uh, we'll be focusing on verses 1 through 6, but we'll, for context, we'll actually be looking again at verse 16 of chapter 2 and reading all the way through verse 6 of chapter 3. And if you have a handout with you, the text is on the back of the handout. And it's going to be um, on the back as well as uh, some of the reference texts that I'll be using today uh, in the passage. So it'll be easier to, to follow along there if, you, if you'd like. And uh, while you're turning there, I have a, I'd like to start off with a question. It's an introspective question. And I just want to ask, do you, remember, do you remember the moment in your life that Jesus truly captured your heart? Do you remember the day, or maybe it was a season... Maybe it was a maybe it was a time and a, a time period in your life where God was drawing you, or maybe it was just one like thunderbolt lightning day that Jesus became more to you than just a figure of history. He became more to you than just a story. He became more to you than what your parents' faith is. He became more to you than that, and he became real. He became precious to you. He became king. He became savior. Do you remember? It's easy as we walk this Christian life to forget our conversion. The day everything changed. Today's passage deals with that very change in the church in Corinth. See, Paul desire through this text is for God to be glorified as the sole agent and the only power that brings about change in a person's life. I want us to think about that. I want us to remember and think back on the day that God changed you, the day Jesus became everything to you, because Paul remembers it, I'm sure. Paul remembers his Firsthand, you may recall the life of Paul before uh, he was converted, right? Paul, he was a Pharisee. He was a lover of the law. He was obedient to it in every respect. But in his heart, he loved and he treasured his obedience. That's what he loved. He loved his obedience rather than the God of the law, rather than the God who is revealed in the law, And so he was never seeking God. He sought only knowledge. He sought power. 
And so when Christianity broke out after the resurrection and Christianity started to spread everywhere, Paul, who loved the law, he loved keeping the law, hated Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he wanted nothing more than to snuff it out. He sought to arrest Christians, if you remember. This is Paul, one who wrote this, this letter. He sought to arrest Christians. He sought to kill Christians. It says in the uh, book of Acts chapter 8, it says that he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He stood there while they stoned a man to death and said, Amen. He was a murderer. Paul hated Jesus with his whole heart. And then one day, Paul just flipped the switch in his own heart and decided to follow Jesus, right? One day, Paul just said, you know, it all just kind of makes sense. I'm going to choose my own volition just to follow Jesus and die for him. That makes sense, doesn't it? No, that's not what Paul did. Like the rest of us, Paul was running from God as fast as he could, but when Jesus burst on the scene, when Jesus burst onto the scene and he stopped Paul in his tracks and he spoke to Paul, he called Paul, and then just one chapter later in Acts chapter 9, Paul is now proclaiming that Jesus is God. What happened to this man? He met Jesus. He met him face to face. Jesus pursued him, he called him, and then he sent him to someone who would preach the gospel to him. And because of that, Paul was forever changed. Forever changed. And so the most significant evidence that anyone has come face to face with Jesus is that of a changed life. That is the greatest evidence that you have met Christ, is that your life has been changed. I believe that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is seeking to draw our attention to that fact this morning in this text. As Paul writes to this church and he calls them to remember their conversion, he's calling this church to remember the change that was wrought in them not by their own will, not by the flesh, but by God. And so let's pray as we go to God's word this morning because we need him to understand what he has for us. Let's go to him this morning. Father, we love you. And Lord, we are busybodies. We fill our days, our minutes, our hours, just being busy, and we don't think deeply, Lord, about the eternal things or about the things of God. We don't think often enough about you. We don't think often enough and meditate often enough on what you have done for us. Give us contrition over that. And continue the work of change in us. 
Help us, Lord, to remember, remember the, the work of this Spirit in us to, to make us new and to change us and what all the implications of that mean. We ask, God, that you would speak this morning, that your word would be heard in just your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in chapter... Uh, chapter 2, verse 16, for context. Paul asked the question, who is adequate for these things? He says, for we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or... Or do we need a sum, letters of commendation to you or from you? you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to, to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but... The Spirit gives life. This is God's word to you this morning. I pray for soft hearts, soft hearts that are able to hear it. Our main point this morning is this, is that the evidence of a godly ministry is Spirit-filled life in the church. The evidence of a godly ministry is a spirit-filled life in the church. So Paul would define his ministry, and really he would define any true believer's ministry, or when you hear ministry, I want you to hear service, okay? Not, not minister like somebody, a hired person in the church, or the way we typically hear the word minister. When you hear the word ministry today, I want you to think servant or service. And so Paul would define his ministry, or he would define any true believer's ministry or service as one of captured service to the risen Christ. It's a captured service to Christ who has called him and us to be an aroma of sacrifice and good news wherever Christ leads us. This is the way Paul views his ministry. And this ministry of loving sacrifice, this ministry that is for the sake of the gospel, it will be received by some unto life, and it will be rejected by others unto death. That was last week. But it begs the question, who's adequate for this? Who's adequate for such a service as to proclaim a message that results in life or death. 
That's the question in verse 17. Who is adequate for this? And he asked that question because adequacy was the big question. It was the big question mark around Paul in this church. Was he adequate? That's what the false teachers were questioning. It is the adequacy of Paul, or you consider maybe the qualification of Paul, or the legitimacy of his service, or his message, or his ministry that is ultimately in question by these false teachers that had infiltrated the church. Is, is Paul really, is his message really true? Can you trust the man? They, they would say, he, he has no, I mean, what qualifications does he have? Who, who recommended him? Who recommended this guy? I mean, can you really trust what he's saying? It's, I mean, let's face it, he's not adequate. That's the message inside this church, and they're, they're buying it up. And so, so Paul brings up his adequacy or his commendation a lot in this book. He tends to bring it up over and over again. We see it here in chapter 3, uh, later again in chapter 4, verse 2, and then later again in 5, verse 12, and then later again in 6, 4, and then finally in chapter 10, where he states that those that commend themselves are not ones who are approved by God. And that's what, so he's like, I agree with you. People who self-commend, which is what they are saying he's doing, they're not approved by God, it is, it, but rather he says, in chapter 10, it is those whom the Lord commends. So whom, those whom the Lord commends, that person is that person who is approved for the work of the ministry, the work of service. So Paul asked the question, who is adequate to carry out the work of God? Who is adequate to serve and build the kingdom of God? Who is worthy or qualified for such a ministry? Paul will say, not I. Not me, not you, but Christ in me. It is Christ in me. To which they might respond, well, okay, but how do you know that your ministry or your work is of Christ? How can we know that it is Christ in you? And how can we know that it is the work of God in you? How can we know that you're from God at all? And so Paul begins his argument. And our first sub-point is this, is that a spirit-filled ministry is first and foremost a biblical ministry. A spirit-filled ministry is first and foremost in totality a biblical ministry. Verse 17 begins by saying, we are not like many who peddle the word of God. And this word peddle, he means, they mean sell it. We're not ones who sell God's word. The idea for word peddle, it actually, uh, in their context and in their culture, they would have heard the word like, I don't, I'm not a huckster. I'm not, I'm not trying to pitch you some snake oil. I'm not using some like twisty or crafty practices to try to sell you something. Okay, that's, I'm not like many who do this. I'm not using deceptive practices like many. This is referring to an adulterated message that twists the scriptures, that twists the scriptures to focus on man and his glory rather than God and his glory. It is ultimately a man-centered gospel, which is an accursed gospel. 
Any ministry that focuses on man or utilizes men's craftiness to, quote, grow the church and detaches from Scripture, this is never, ever, ever going to be of the Spirit of God. You cannot detach from the Scripture of God and say that this is of the Spirit of God. They are completely together. How can you ever say that this is, I just feel the Spirit in me to say something outside of this? It doesn't happen. Because the Spirit of God uses only the Word of God to reach those made in the image of God. It's the only way an image bearer of God will hear God is if God's Word is spoken. You are not made in the image of man, so you don't need man's words. You need God's words to waken you up. Any other kind of crafty ideas that men come up with? Any other kind of like ingenuity devoid of the word of God, devoid of the truth of Christ? I don't care how many baptisms there are. I don't care how many professions of faith there are as a result of man's Efforts, it's not of the Spirit if it's not wrought by the Word of God. So we preach Christ. We preach Him. We preach His Word. We preach His gospel as He has given it. You don't get to change it. You don't get to twist it. You don't get to add to it. You don't get to subtract from it. We put nothing of our own ingenuity into it. But we remember that we are merely captured servants who belong to the king. And we speak the word of God. That's it. That's it. This is the message that makes you adequate. Your words are inadequate. His word through you makes you adequate. The biblical ministry is an adequate ministry. And so the spirit-filled church is a biblical church. And the spirit-filled home is a biblical home. And the spirit-filled person is a biblical person. All of which who are driven to know God only as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so Paul, he begins to defend his ministry as being from God by contrasting himself from those who adulterate scripture to lift man up with himself as saying, we uphold the word of God. And then he begins to address an issue brought up in the church. And so we look in, the, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, he says this, is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need a, some you know, letters of recommendation from you? And so Paul has been accused of self-commending or self-authenticating. He's been accused of coming with no references. And so, you see, these false teachers, they came with references. They came with references from, quote, sound institutions, uh, perhaps even local synagogues who were considered the enemy of Paul in Corinth. If you go back to chapter 18 of Acts, you'll see that the synagogues are the enemies of Paul there. So there's a lot of thought that maybe they were sending these false teachers in. But reference letters, they were common practice. So Paul doesn't have a problem with reference letters. He used them. He actually would send Apollos with a reference letter. So he doesn't have a problem with reference letters. 
The idea of the reference letter or the, uh, or the purpose of these letters was to really be a form of introduction. It was designed to bring somebody from the outside of the body into the body and say, I'm, I'm introducing this person to you. Receive them. Right? We've seen that even at the some of the end of Paul's epistles. Receive them with a hug. Receive them with a kiss. It's a, it's a way of introducing somebody. So, so think about this. I, lo- I love this because... That's just a little sarcasm, but, uh, and maybe that's wrong, but it's in the scriptures, so I don't know. Paul says, Paul says, we preach the word, they don't. And he's like, oops, am I commending myself again? Uh-oh. Uh, wait, do I need a letter of recommendation? Do I, need to, do I need somebody to reintroduce me to you? He just gets really sarcastic with them and, I know Ashley hates when I get sarcastic. I don't do it as spirit-filled as Paul does. <laughs> but remember, this is kind of ridiculous, right? This is kind of silly. It was Paul who first preached the gospel to them. It was Paul who was the first one to enter this city to preach the gospel to them, and he was the first one to, to tell them the very message that, would, that, that when they received it, that would establish the church. Right, I can just imagine this. Imagine my daughter, all right? She, imagine little Piper. And she's running around the house. She's playing with toys. And Ashley says, okay, Piper, it's time to clean up. And Piper says, hold a sec. I'm going to need a uh, letter of recommendation. Uh, I'm not really sure you're my mom. Can you, uh, can you kind of prove to me that you have the authority to tell me to clean up my, uh, my toys, mom? And... What would you say, Ash? I birthed you. That's my authority. That's my evidence. And so it would be just as ridiculous. It would be absolutely just as ridiculous for Paul to need a letter to reintroduce him to the body when he was the very instrument of God to birth this church. And so, of course, he's going to be sarcastic with them. Why, do I, why would I need to reintroduce myself to you? This is ridiculous. And so he says in verse 2, he says, you are my letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, meaning you are my recommendation letter. You are my commendation, and you've, you were written on our hearts, meaning that we love you as brothers in Christ. Because when you heard the gospel, you received it, and you repented of your sin, and you were grafted into the family of God, just like that, just with me, and we love you because of it. You became dear brothers and sisters to us, and we tell everyone about you. Everywhere we go, we talk about you. He says in verse 3, this is being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. And you're, you're cared for by us. He's saying that, look, everywhere we go, every city that the Lord Jesus Christ drags me into, I'm telling people of the reception of the gospel in Corinth. I'm like, you should see. You should see these people. They've, they went from worshiping a statue to worshiping the true God. They've given up practices of heinous sins, and, they've, and they started worshiping in spirit and truth. It's amazing. You should see what's happening in Corinth. 
This is what he says everywhere he goes. And he says that this reveals something. This reveals something. It reveals, or we should hear, it makes clearly known that you are not just any letter, but you're a letter of Christ. So Paul is referring to this church in Corinth as a letter. He's, he's, he's saying that you are the recommendation letter and the author is Jesus Christ. The author is Jesus Christ. The messenger, Paul. And I carry this letter with me everywhere I go, authenticating the message that my ministry is from God. So we should see that Paul is saying that Christ is sending him throughout the world with a letter of authenticity. And this letter is the changed life of this church. It is the birth of the church in Corinth. It is the conversion of pagan idolaters that give evidence to the validity of Paul's ministry because only God can do that. It proves that the message preached when received is receiving the authoritative word of God. Paul says, I don't need a letter. Your changed life. Your changed life is my letter. Point two. Point two is that the the spirit-filled ministry is a new covenant ministry. The spirit-filled ministry is a new covenant ministry. Continuing in verse three, speaking of this letter, again, authored by Christ, being delivered everywhere by Paul. He says in verse three, the second half says, written not with ink. So this is not the work of natural or physical means. It says, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. This is new covenant language. Paul is beginning to use new covenant language, and it's, it's going to make him what appears to completely kind of tangent off into explaining the difference between law and the new covenant. But he starts here by just talking in a way that should remind us of this new covenant. He begins by contrasting the old covenant law of Moses. So when we hear the word like tablets, right? The law written on stone tablets, we should hear Ten Commandments, law of Moses. And the new covenant he's mentioning, or the new to the new covenant, referencing things written on hearts, we hear in the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then we hear this confirmed later in John 3 and in Luke 22 by Jesus himself. And so I want to take a minute and just read through some of these prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So on the back of your handout, if you have one, it's there. If not, flip in your Bible to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put 
I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was the this was the prophecy of the new covenant that God would institute to the nation of Israel. It's mentioned again in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 23 through 27. If, if you don't know, remember that this, these passages were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Okay? Ezekiel 36, 23 through 27 says, Lord is speaking. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you, being Israel, you have profaned in, the, in their midst. You haven't helped, Israel. Then the, nations, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God does it all. He's going to do it all. This prophecy, this is a prophecy of Israel's final conversion. This is a prophecy of Israel's final conversion that we read about in Romans 11, when the nation will finally see Christ as their Messiah, they will receive him and they will be grafted back in. Both of these speak of how Israel will be converted. This is how Israel will be converted. By the work of God and his spirit doing everything. We're talking about a people who had, as it said in the text, no good in them at all. They profaned his name. They had the law. They had the prophets. They eventually had God in the flesh, walk among them, but they would reject it all because their hearts were dead. They did not love God. But in the end, God will be the one who gets the glory. He will wash them clean, he says. He will remove their hard hearts. He will put a new heart in them. He will put a heart that is soft and teachable. He will then write his law on their hearts. He will give them his spirit to live within them. And by his spirit, he will cause them. You hear that? Did you catch that in the text? He will cause them to walk in his statutes. And they will be, by the power of God alone, careful to walk or to observe his ordinances. They will go from serving God out of duty to serving God out of love. 
And God will do it all to them and for them. Well, don't, don't they have like a, like a say in the matter? I don't see it. I don't see it. God will do it all. This is their future. God will do it. He will convert them by his power in his timing and for his glory. Now, the principle, the principle we get from these prophecies is that this is how God converts anyone. The way in which he's going to convert Israel in the future is the way he has been converting people since Adam. It has always been by the power of the regenerating power of the Spirit of God in the heart of man, taking a dead heart and making it alive. It is always by the work of the Spirit. The way that God brought Israel, will bring Israel into repentance is the same way he will bring everyone into repentance and anyone going forward in the future into repentance. It is God who takes the old man into the grave with Christ and raises him up a new man with Christ. If you are in fact in Christ, you are a new creation. It is God who puts you into Christ by faith. So now now you might say, well, how is this right? How is this fair? How can rebellious people like Israel, as God said, How can they be people who reject him and hate him, who deserve his judgment, don't they? Don't they deserve the judgment of God? How can he just change them willy-nilly? I thought he was a just God. And he is. He is. He is just and righteous to punish all sin. He said in his word, I will by no means clear the guilty. All liars have their part in the lake of fire. All sinners have their hand of God's judgment on top of them, everyone. He is just and righteous to punish everyone in this room. But look at Luke 22, verse 20, at the Last Supper. He lifts up the cup. Jesus lifts up the cup, and he says, this is the cup poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning that this new covenant, this method of salvation of God's work to change you or to change us, it is not free. It came at great cost. A sacrifice is needed to ratify a covenant. Blood was needed to ratify a covenant. When God gave the law to Moses, they they erected an altar and they brought a bull and they would sacrifice the bull and the, and the blood of the bull was needed to ratify this new or this, this covenant written on stone tablets. And the blood of this bull would be sprinkled on the altar and on the people. Saying that this covenant applies from God to you. 
And when Jesus lifted up the cup and said, this is the blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, poured out for you. He's saying that this new covenant is going to be ratified not by the blood of a bull, but by the blood of a lamb. The lamb of God. Jesus Christ himself would pour out his blood on the cross. And when he did that, he would purchase for us a new covenant that anyone who would put their faith in Christ would receive this new covenant and he would purchase this covenant with his own blood and it would be sprinkled on you as God's new covenant for you. It is a gift of salvation. It is the gift of the Spirit who would regenerate us, meaning he would give us new hearts, and he alone would make us clean through the cross. We should leave here today, and thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. You made me clean and purchased for me a new heart and a new spirit and a new desire to love and to worship in spirit and truth. I could not do it on my own. I was dead. Thank you for the cross. And so getting back to verse three, Paul says this. He says that this letter that Jesus wrote, this letter that Jesus wrote being the church, right? He did not, he did not create the church with ink. He did not attract a group of people into an assembly with law, with rules. They did not assemble because they all agreed on the same rules. He created the church and he converted each and every one of them the same way he's converted everyone, by the power of the Spirit. He said, who wrote the law not on paper or tablets for their minds to read or understand. This is not merely a comprehensive change. but he wrote it on their hearts to love. Blesses the man who delights in the law of God. And on his word, he meditates day and night. Not blesses the man who just thinks the law is cool or a good idea, but loves. And so you will see the Corinthians, that the work of God in them, produced by the gospel that Paul preached, is evidence that his ministry is of God. They are his defense. And so verse 4, he continues and says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, it's to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. This is why Paul is confident towards God. Basically, he's saying that God is my witness that through Christ, the change in you is evidence of my message. The, the change in you is, is why I'm confident towards God, through Christ. He says in verse 4 that he is confident because he has witnessed the work of the Spirit through faith in Christ. He has witnessed the heart change in himself to go from murderer to gospel proclaimer. He's saying heart change. 
by the work of the Spirit in them to go from pagan idolaters to lovers of Jesus Christ. He says this is what makes him adequate. It's God who makes him adequate for ministry. Therefore, it's God who makes anyone adequate for service in his kingdom. That's what he says. When he answers the question, finally, he says, who is adequate for these things? Verse 5 and 6, he concludes his adequacy, his authenticity. It comes from God. Comes from him. So it is the spirit and it is his word that takes anyone from inadequate to adequate. We also see that he refers to himself here as a servant that he wasn't just made adequate for no, no reason. He was made adequate by God unto a purpose, unto servitude of this new covenant. This is how he would define his ministry. He would say, I am one who has received mercy. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. It's a ministry of one who has received mercy. It is a ministry of reconciliation. That's what he says in chapter 5. And his service is to call others into this ministry and reconciliation back to God. And again, all by this new covenant message by the power of the Spirit. In contrast, not by calling people to obey the law. It is not by calling people to obey the works of the law or by obeying the letter. Paul warns them. This is a warning. From God to anyone who hears it, that the letter kills. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate the holy character of God to put on display that he does not lie. He owns all things, so he does not covet. That in the triune nature, he honors God. It was, it was meant to be a, a demonstration of the holy character of God, and it was therefore a mirror. It was a mirror showing us in comparison to God, just how filthy we are. That's what the purpose of the law was for, to demonstrate to us our filth as we are so different from God. Our character doesn't line up to God. We are not like him. It was never meant to be an instrument of change. It was never meant to be the means of redemption. I want, imagine for a minute that you go camping, or maybe you have a, a fire pit outside your house and you eat s'mores. Now, maybe you guys eat s'mores cleaner than I do. But when I eat s'mores, I don't care how old you get, it's all over your face. Okay? You just can't help it. It's, it's amazing. It's really good. Okay? And so you go to bed. Unbeknownst to you, your face is just ridiculous. And you wake up in the morning and you go look in the mirror and you go, oh, man, it's dirty. And then you take the mirror and you start rubbing it all over your face. How ridiculous would that be? You can't use the mirror to clean yourself up. You must use something else. It must be, the mirror just shows you your need to be cleansed. 
You can't cleanse your face with a mirror. It won't work. And if you keep trying, if you keep trying to use the thing that merely was designed to show you your filth, to get rid of your filth, you will die in your filth. You will die in your sin, and therefore, it kills you. Because you get so dialed in on the dirt on your face. You get so dialed in on the mirror that shows it to you. You just, I got to clean it. You keep trying to go to the law, to the mirror to clean it, but it doesn't work. The law kills, but the spirit, as we've seen already, the spirit is the one, he gives life. And so it is life in the church in Corinth that validates the message they preach. And he would conclude that it is life in us that reveals that the work of the spirit is at work in us. It is life in you that validates that the Spirit is at work in you. So point three is this, is that the Spirit-filled ministry produces life in you. Always. Without question. The spirit-filled ministry produces life in you. It is life in us that demonstrates to the world and to one another that Christ is in you. And that Christ is leading you. Life. Like we discussed last week, it is the work of the spirit that reveals uh, to us the love of Christ which then captures you and compels you and produces in you a desire. That's heart language. Desire is heart language. To be a willing servant, that's also heart language to the one who purchased you with his blood. It takes you from rebel sinner trying to clean yourself up and make yourself look good to God and man to just humble servant who loves the one who bought you and redeemed you and captured you and leads you. So how do we define life? How do we define true life? Imagine for a moment there was a man in a coma. He's laying there. He's unconscious, but he's breathing. He's breathing. His heart is beating. He is alive. But almost anyone would say, yes, he's alive, but that's not living. That's not living. Living is defined, and I would say almost anyone would define life this way, that living is defined as life that is lived as, as it was meant or designed to be lived. We were never meant to live just laying on a bed. So that's not life. We were meant, as most people would say, to live life to the fullest. Take every day and live. And so how do we define Life as it was meant to be lived. How does God define it? Well, God made us in his image. So we were made to image him. To reflect his image. God made us or designed us also to live in fellowship with him. This means in like-minded harmony. Like-hearted harmony with God. 
And in this fellowship and in his image, we reflect his image and then all that we bring him glory. So the ultimate end of the meaning of your life is to reflect his image and to bring him glory. This is how you were made to live. And therefore it is fellowship with God that we define or God defines as life. That's what the spirit wants in you. Fellowship with God like-minded, like-hearted fellowship with your creator. That's life. He gives you a hunger. He gives you a thirst for Jesus. And he makes us a people who obey from the heart out of love for him, the God of your salvation. That is life. And so the question is, the question is this, is how many in the room are asking us to ourselves every, as often as we think of it, as often as the word brings it up to us, has this spirit wrought life in you? Is he working life in this church? Many seek to know if the Spirit is at work in a church. I hear many all the time say, what if this, is the Spirit working? Is the Spirit working in this body? Well, how do you know? Is it through signs and wonders? Are we seeking miracles to determine whether or not the Spirit's at work? Is it, is it really kind of unique, you can't explain it kind of circumstances? Like, oh, that just can't be coincidence. Wow, the Spirit must be at work. Is it a robust preaching ministry that is trendy and catchy? Is it because we can see that a church really has exploded, right? People are coming in by the hundreds. Is that evidence of the work of the Spirit? Is it through really sincere people who tap you on the shoulder and say, I have a word for you. I have a word of prophecy for you. Is that evidence that the work of the Spirit is happening here? How do you know the Spirit of the Lord is at work in this church? You will see life. You will see life in the church. That means you will see hearts change from loving sin to loving God. You will see a passion for Christ. You'll see a passion, I mean a real desire in your innermost being to be like the one who saved you. To be like him. You'll see a passion for others to know him. You'll see people just hungry to see others discipled. That's what you'll see. Life in the church. You'll see people who are growing in a consistent way. In the forsaking of the world and gripping tighter to Christ. Running from sin as though it were chasing you down to grip to Christ. Not just once, not just in a decision you made one time, long time ago, but every day. You'll see a people in love with the word of God without which no wisdom can be found. You'll see a people who are no longer dependent on themselves, but you will, you will look around and you'll say, man, I just see a bunch of weak, needy, dependent people on their knees all the time pleading with God to show them more of the gospel that they may cling tighter to Christ. This is the evidence of the Spirit at work in us. This is the evidence 
of life in the church, it is also evidence of life in you. Christianity is not a one and done thing. It is a process, but is the process continuing? The question isn't though, are you growing and doing good things? There are all kinds of people stapling fruit to a dead tree. And it looks to us in this room like, wow, they're really holy. Man, they're, they're really good Christians. But I don't care. I really don't care if you come every week. I mean, I do, but that doesn't prove anything. I don't care if you come every Wednesday. I don't care if you call yourself a conservative I don't care if, you just, if you're serving your little heart out. The evidence is not in what you do, but it is in who you love. And is that growing in you? And so, so have, have your desires changed? Have you seen a change in you that says, not my kingdom, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Have you seen your desires for self-sufficiency go away and find yourselves more dependent on Christ? Do you see desires for worldly pleasure going away and desires for joy of serving him increasing? Do you desire to know Christ more today than you did yesterday? Do you yet hunger for his word? Is your heart growing in sensitivity, in contrition towards sin? When you sin, is your your heart broken over it? There's no such thing as a person who has met the risen Christ and is left unchanged. There is no such person. And so in closing, I just have three encouragements, short encouragements. Number one, remember. Remember, for most of us today, the call this morning is to remember your conversion. Remember the day your love changed. Don't go back to Egypt. Remember the day your Love changed in the work of the Spirit. What he produced in you. Remember that day. Remember when Jesus became precious to you. Remember the resurrection of life you were given with God. Remember how your heart changed from loving death to loving God. Remember and then live. Like live as God meant for you to live in the power of Christ, in the power of his spirit. Number two, number two, test. For some, the aim of Paul from this letter and therefore the aim of the spirit for some in this room, the word of God is calling you to test yourself, to see if in fact Christ is in you. That's hard for me to say. To test yourself. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. 
Examine your passions. Are they for Christ or yourself? Have you truly been changed by God? This is the call of 2 Corinthians at the end of the book, the last chapter. Chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, he says this. He says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. He says, examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Do you, you pass the test of the work of the Spirit changing you from the inside, writing his law on your heart? Final encouragement and exhortation. Whether you are in camp one or camp two, final exhortation is pray. Go to your knees every morning, every afternoon if you must, every evening to plead with God. To plead with your creator and just pray that God through the gospel would continue to produce a growing hope and a growing passion and a growing joy found in Christ, in Christ alone. Pray. Like Jesus in the garden, pray that the work of the Spirit continue to have his full effect. With sweat, with intensity, and with meaning, and with passion, and with real zeal, pray that he would work life in you. my hope for myself and for this body. Let's pray.